Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce my guest to you today, Carol McKelvey. Carol has a master's degree in clinical psychology, and she's a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Carol has over 15 years experience as a relationship expert working with children, adolescents, families, and individuals. Carol's passion is working with families and children. She's dedicated most of her life to helping heal the severely abused, neglected, and traumatized with reactive attachment disorder. Aside from her clinical work, Carol is also a nationally recognized attachment and bonding expert. She's published five books about repairing family relationships, blended families, adoptive and foster parenting, and working with difficult children. Carol is empathetic, receptive, and wise. She's passionate about her work and will tirelessly handle anything clients can throw at her. Carol, welcome to the Rad Talk with Tracy podcast. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I was telling you a bit before we started that I'm always uh, excited and relieved when I'm able to meet someone who is familiar and works in the world of reactive attachment disorder. And I think my listeners probably are too. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, I've been doing this for quite a while. Quite a while. Is it over 15 years I read? It's over 15 years. Yes. How did you get started? How did you end up in this world of reactive (laughs) attachment disorder? That's a really interesting question. I would, I, my first career was at as, as a journalist. Oh, wow. And I was the editor of the lifestyle section of a newspaper called the Rocky Mountain News, which was the dominant newspaper in the Colorado region. It no longer exists, unfortunately. But uh, as the lifestyles editor, I chose people who contributed columns and things like that. And one day, this gentleman by the name of Ken McGid, who was a psychologist and very heavily into reactive attachment disorder. Some of the movements started in Colorado with the Evergreen Center for Attachment And Ken was associated with them. And he came to me and wanted to write a column, a parenting column. And as he and I got talking, and he told me about this disorder and the kids that were involved and how it was a lot of internationally adopted children. We we became friends and he started his column. And I couldn't believe that there were kids out there that couldn't bond to their parents and who were really, you know, at a disadvantage. And 
one thing led to another. And he asked me one day, he said he wanted to write a book. And he asked me, he said, do you know how to write a book? <laughs> of course, I'm a journalist. Right. And so I said, okay, well, no, I've never written a book, but I think I could figure out how to do it. <laughs> sure. And so I was the writer and he was the brains and the theory behind High Risk Children Without a Conscience. And it was the first book published in the United States that dealt with reactive attachment disorder. And it primarily, it came out in 1987. And uh, one thing led to another and I decided to go back to uh, university and get my master's in counseling. Wow. It's, it's an easy transition. As a journalist, you're interviewing and you're trying to get the story. And it was, it was a very easy transition to become a counselor. Interesting. Was there one story or one topic that he wrote about in the paper that really, I guess, really hit you or, or spoke to you or shocked you about reactive attachment disorder? Was there one that really helped kind of go, wow? Uh, yeah, Ted Bundy. <laughs> oh, Right. That right. would do it. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't have, in my opinion, reactive attachment disorder. Uh, he was very cold. He was, he was a psychopath. He didn't have a good relationship with his mother. In fact, he thought she was his aunt for a long time. And then eventually it went into what it was. Right. Ken, unfortunately, is, is no longer with us. He was killed in an airplane crash uh, quite some years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But he told me many stories about different kids, and they're, they're all in high risk. And I went back to uh, Regis University in Denver and quit my newspaper profession and became a licensed counselor. And what was it about these stories that <clears throat> made you, I know you were shocked. You said you were shocked that these kids could not form a bond. And it sounds like he worked with a lot of those kids. He didn't work with Ted Bundy, did he? He just no. he analyzed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what was it about that, that drove you to the point of wanting to help or, or, go and get your master's degree in clinical psychology. I just felt compelled. I felt I could make a difference. Mm. They have. Right. There have been a lot of kids who benefited from the therapy I've provided them. Ken and I split on exactly the way we've, we felt about how to handle it. He was very much into the holding therapy Okay. That has been somewhat discredited. And I was not. I, I learned how to do it, but I felt it was more traumatizing and it was helpful. Right. And what was holding therapy? Just holding the child for a certain amount of time and not letting them go until they calm? Or it was, in my opinion, it takes the control away from the child. Right and uh, gets them into a very disturbed place where they then want to uh, 
that reach out to their adoptive or foster parent. And it, it's kind of hard to explain, but if you, I, I'm sure if you look up uh, Dr. Foster Klein, or you look up um, a lot of people on the internet and you Google holding therapy. I'll find something. You'll find it. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> you'll find it. I did not embrace it. No. Uh, what was your approach? My approach is, um, and this is odd because the problem with kids with uh, reactive attachment disorder is that they can't form relationships. Well, right. my, my approach is building a relationship with a child and however I have to do that. And then approaching the relationship with the parents or the parents after I've gotten their trust. And I know that's very difficult. I call it the McKelvey method. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it's just something I, I guess I have a gift for. So you were very successful using that. So you would uh, create a relationship with the child and then start working with the parents and integrate the family piece of it. Is that right? Yeah, it's impossible to do attachment therapy work without having the parent in the room. Yes. I, uh, I had a, I've worked with teenagers. I worked with very little ones. And when I had my own private practice, I had a playroom set up that would appeal to all ages of kids. Right. And I would bring the parent and the child or the teenager into the playroom and they would have their choice of whatever they wanted to work on or play with. Most of the teenagers gravitated to the sand tray, mm. which is, um, it's a very primitive kind of work but uh sensory it's sensory mm -hmm. and they can build their their story in the sand tray and then you know you have to develop at this point the parents are like at their wits end sure and you have to uh i've been there you know what that's like <laughs> I do. sadly i do yeah. I, I had a stepdaughter who was attachment disordered i know what it's like too so you've experienced it in your own personal life as well. Yes. You know, I'm always trying to think from a parent perspective and people who are listening, you know, did you often get the same question or see the same needs in parents and, and were you able to help them through that? What were those if you did see that? Mm -hmm. Terrible frustration. No, I love this child to death. Why can't the child love me back? Right. You know, it's really horrible when a parent has a child say, I hate you over and over again. Right. And, you know, it just cuts to their basic, I'm a mom or right. I'm a dad. Right. And why can't I get through to this kid? Right. And to live with someone like you're saying, who really doesn't love you back and to have to be in that role of, and want to be, in that role of caring and loving that person and not receiving it back and not hearing those I love you's or or the care, any caring at all. Right. Affection. Yeah. Right. And getting fought at every turn. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these kids, they're they're so damaged 
so that they can be they can be fighting you doing something that is so obvious that they're doing it and they don't care right like a little kid could be sitting there with his hand in the cookie jar and telling his mom he wasn't eating any cookies right <laughs> yeah yeah. No, and just constant struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, that's very common. I was talking to another parent saying the same thing, watching the child do what they're doing while they're saying they're not doing it. Right. And to us, it makes no sense. I mean, I see you. How could you think somebody would believe what you're saying? Right. right. And then if you get into a constant battle with them, you know, and the parent really has to take control, but be empathetic and understand where the child's coming from. That it's not, you say, don't take it personal. Well, how can you not take it personal? I was just going to say, can you tell me how? <laughs> right. How can you not? <laughs> right. You know, it's right. just ridiculous. But uh, part of the therapy that I do is to teach the parents what they're experiencing. And then uh, going through some very primitive steps to, to try and rebond or try to establish that bonding. And uh, sometimes it can get really weird. Yeah. In what way? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just recently uh, finished um, having a therapeutic intervention with a little boy in uh, northern New Mexico. I'm only licensed in New Mexico, so I primarily see people in New Mexico. He had had, and his, the parents feel so guilty, especially if they're birth parents and they have mm. a childhood attachment disorder. If you're an adoptive parent, you feel guilty, yes, but you know that it didn't come from you exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, in this particular family, the mother was sick when he was a baby oh. and she couldn't attend to him properly. Right. Okay. And he became attachment disordered and the solution for him. And I found this to work in a couple of cases was we regressed him back to being a baby. And the, he was about five when I started working with him, we regressed him back to being a baby and it worked and it was like wow this did work <laughs> mm -hmm. it's almost like going back and restarting retracing right. the steps but going the right way this time doing the right, right. things Interesting. and uh we we you know we had him he, he totally bought into it and he actually relished it because mm, mom was mom was feeding him a bottle and was had him in diapers and some people will think well this is strange and weird this is crazy right because how old was he again five five okay yeah i mean it's not like he was 15 i know was, <laughs> that's what i was just clarifying that would be yeah. weird it'd be really weird <laughs> really weird really right? you weird could, yeah. you couldn't possibly do it with a kid no. You know, it's the first two years that are so important. The first two and, years. Yeah. First two years are when they get really screwed up. Mm. 
And so we went back and we redid the first two years. And uh, he stopped hitting his siblings. He stopped being defiant. Mm -hmm. He's now, he writes me letters regularly. Really? He and his siblings. Really? There are five of them. And they draw pictures and they write me these wonderful letters about what they've been doing. And, oh. and uh, so we really formed a, I really formed a close relationship with this family. And uh, he's six now, he's going to school now. And he doesn't run away when the mom tells him, you start with the baby steps. Like he's on the other side of the room and mother will say, Joseph, that's not his real name. Joseph, yeah. come to mommy. And it's just a little practice of getting him to do what what mom wants. Right. And we managed to do it with this kid, and he's wow. he's doing great. Did it take that full year? How long did it take you to? No, it took no. two years. Two years. Okay. Two years, and we slowly grew him in increments. Mm. So he went from being a baby with a bottle and nappies to uh, to celebrating his fifth birthday. We celebrated his birthdays as he made it to the next stage in his development. And uh, he had a first birthday and he had a second birthday and third and fourth and fifth. And then he had a regular sixth birthday when he turned six. That's so rewarding. Oh, yeah. He just did great. Right. And the fact these kids all, he's got, he's got, uh, the oldest one is 12. And then there's an eight year old and he's the, he's not the youngest. There were two babies after him, right. but they're fine because mom wasn't sick when she right. had them. They all write me these little letters every month and draw pictures. That's so sweet. <laughs> tell me. <laughs> So, you know, this is part of the reward of doing this work. Really. Right. Seeing, oh, I bet. Seeing these kids, you know, get better and. It's a tough crowd. To, it's a it's tough, a tough crowd. crowd. Right. Yeah. When I tell people I work with kids with attachment disorder, they go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Could you pick anything harder? <laughs> right. Well, you apparently like a challenge. And it's uh, like you say, it's very rewarding. And I love that you know, you believe it's possible. Therapy can help these kiddos. Right. What wouldn't you recommend a parent do if they suspect their child has some kind of attachment or reactive attachment disorder? Are there steps they can take or to set themselves up for the best possible outcome? I would go to the uh, RAD network and find a therapist who's near them who is recommended um so the rad network is a network of therapists who specialists right right okay and they have the conferences every year it would be good for a parent to go to one of those to hear what rad therapists say right i would uh be careful in whom i'm choosing make sure that they don't use uh, invasive techniques. What would be invasive? Holding the holding, therapy. yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So, what should a parent look for in in a therapeutic program or 
therapist, what is the best or what would you suggest are the things mm-hmm. to really watch out for and the things to make sure that that person is skilled at? I would look for someone who is, uh, has been doing it for a long time. And you mentioned the family. Everybody has to be included. We know that. Right. No, it, you can, absolutely cannot do attachment therapy without the family. Right. So if somebody wants to do it one-on-one with the child, that's a red flag. Right. Yeah. Okay. And no, you can't do that. Yeah. And if somebody suggests that, then you know that you you don't have the right person. Right. Uh, so that RAD network do they filter out everybody or is it a pretty good place to feel confident and then ask those questions, make sure that the family is included and they're not working one-on-one and anything that sounds invasive, maybe do a little homework, Google, find out their philosophy and their methods and, and then do a little background check. Gotcha. Right. And if you happen to be lucky enough to be able to go to a conference, right or read anything i i find the the most important reading a, a parent can do is from another parent's perspective and there are right. a lot of books out there yes there are a lot of actual professional trainers read anything by nancy thomas yeah exactly isn't that the truth <laughs> yeah anything by her yeah And you're right. There are a lot of parents, you know, I've interviewed a few that have written their own books and I was talking with another parent on the phone the other day. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think it really is about connecting with other people that have experienced what you've experienced as well as the therapy, of course, and therapy for yourself as a parent. But we were, she was noticing that on one of the Facebook pages for rad parents, you know, a lot of the newer parents coming into it or experiencing it in the early days, she was noticing that a lot of the the moms that have kind of been there and done that are on the other side of it, or at least further along than they are you know, one of the common recommendations or suggestions to these parents when they're saying, what do I do was really to just, you know, she said, treat it like a business transaction. You really have to kind of separate yourself. Like you're saying too, don't make it personal, but which is hard to do, but separate yourself from, from it. And that's a hard thing to do because Mm -hmm. you came into this as a parent and you want to give that love. You want to receive that love. And it's, you end up in a role I think you didn't expect. And as a parent, it's hard to step back from that and treat it like a business transaction or let go of those expectations. It's just a hard place to be. And you really have to parent very differently and not the way I think you expect or want to. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And um, Jim Fay and Foster Klein have developed a series of books that deal with how to parent and set limits. And so anything you can find from them that isn't about holding therapy, but it's about (laughs) a step. I I hate to, to keep harping on that, but it's just, it's just not helpful in my, in my mind. Right. I know that you mentioned one success story, the little boy that with his mom who was sickened in a form, form attachment. 
is that the story that sticks out in your mind as being one of your most memorable? I mean, you still have a relationship today, but some um, a memorable story and maybe one that really was there one that, you know, was really challenging or that changed your perspective on therapy or shocked you, you know, something that stands yeah. out. There's absolutely one. I worked with, I was involved for a long time in treatment foster care. And the, most of the kids who find themselves in treatment foster care, most of them are attachment disordered kids. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with a girl, she was in her, when I first met her, Amy, that's not her real name. Right. She was 12. And this is a child who had been, she had a single mom and she's a birth mom, single birth mom. And they were traveling for a vacation somewhere. And when she was about two, a hotel employee uh, who cleaned the rooms had left an open container of bleach in the bathroom. She drank it. <gasps> and it burned all the way from her esophagus into her stomach, into her small intestine. Oh my gosh. And the mother discovered her in the bathroom drinking the bleach. Oh. And she was, she basically had no. She was damaged from her throat to her small intestine mm. and operation after operation, after operation, painful, painful, painful oh, stuff. That poor kid. I know. And poor mom. Yeah. Yeah. And she became attachment disorder. She was very attached before this happened. And she was two when this happened and this uh, completely broke the bond between her and her mother. And so I worked with them. She was placed in the, in the treatment foster care agency I was working with. And this is how she, she had numerous, numerous operations. And now she was struggling with acid reflux. Oh yeah. After they'd repaired her as much as they could repaired her digestive system. Mm -hmm. she would her, her lungs would fill with acid from her stomach and she would choke and you'd have to take her to the hospital again and they'd have to pump her mm -hmm. out and it was it was an ongoing tragedy with this mm -hmm. girl it was so bad and I worked with the mom and and Amy and I Amy and I established a wonderful caring relationship between us. Nice. And I was able to help them, the mom rebond. So tell me a little bit about how that bond was broken because of that incident versus it being, you know, what happened there? How, how was that an attachment break? Because the mom could not, the mom could not enter pain. Right. The mom could not do what she needed to do right to keep the attachment going 
So the trust was broken. The trust was broken. And boy, she was a, she was a pistol. She was a handful. Yeah. She hated everyone. Oh, I bet. Yeah, just hated everyone. Especially when you're in such pain all the time, too. She was in pain all the time. She was now getting this stuff that was infecting her lungs. It was like she was in, she was fighting for her life almost every minute. Right. But she was a pretty strong girl. And oh, incredible. That's the one that, that was, that's, if I can say anything, I think that was one of my strongest, most positive cases that I worked on. Right. It was the hardest. Yeah. Very hard. So you got, they built the bond back. Yeah. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with them at all? You know, she contacted me through Facebook oh, about wow. uh, about a year ago. We haven't kept up the relationship. Right. But she did. I, I often have kids who I've worked with who have attachment disorder find me on Facebook. Right. It's like, are you the Carol McKelvey that I worked with when I was a kid? And yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, that says a lot there. You know, you obviously made a an impact on and a difference in their lives memorable imprinted so that they're you know years later they remember you and appreciate you that's remarkable yeah, that that no that's that's the most remarkable thing right it's uh it really feels good you know and i know that i know that in some of these kids lives i've made the difference yeah not everybody you can't reach everybody no uh and you, have you had some some that you haven't been able to reach? And what happens there? What makes them unreachable? It was too early and too much. Too early and too much. And too early and too much. I worked with a kid. Oh, my God. He knew how to be a dog. Hmm. He was thrown in a room with the family dog. And they had to, he had scratch, he had, bites and stuff all over his face and he had to learn how to be a dog and he had to fight with the dog to get food they put him in the room with the dog i mean so neglectful such such a horrible the parents should have gone to jail for neglect Hi listeners, I am so excited to tell you that there is a conference happening this summer for us, for you, RAD parents. It's called Navigating RAD 2021 and it's being hosted by RAD Advocates. The conference is going to take place August 20th to 21st in Denver, Colorado. Registration is open. So hop on the website, radadvocates.org, sign up for the conference and check out their amazing lineup of who's going to be there, including other parents just like you. Start making your travel plans to Denver the weekend of August 20th to 21st. I hope to see you there. It reminds me of that story, you know, I minored in psych a long time ago, but um, was it Victor, that child? There's a story that you always... Learn the child about. called it yes yes yeah he was very That's much what that. it reminded me of yeah okay and we had to teach him how to be a boy i bet you did not ever expect to see that in your career <laughs> never ever <laughs> right no, the That's first time i the met textbooks. him first time i met him he's on all fours on the floor wow now he he wasn't 
I can't say that we were able to, we were able to help him so that he's a boy now, not a dog, mm-hmm. but he never was able to uh, establish a, a normal relationship with his foster parents. Or anybody? Does he have a, is he able or to? Or anybody yeah. that I know of. Wow. A lonely place to be. So some of the kids don't make it. You know, I talk to a lot of people and some people say it's, well, most people say there's a piece of choice in it too. Like you're saying it was too soon. They're not ready. If you can think of anything, what else makes somebody, what is too soon? What is not ready? Just that they're not ready to face, do that hard work because it's hard. Mm -hmm. You have to, it's a scary place to let go of all that protection and to trust people. Right. So, yeah. Right. They're not ready to um, to be able to give up any of the power they think they have. They don't have any power. Right. But they think they have power. Yeah. And they're not ready to give any of that up because something so terrible happened to them or they just had, you know, they're not ready to give up anything mm-hmm. because they don't see any value in it. No value. A lot in of the it, kids yeah. from uh, foreign orphanages are so very damaged from so early mm-hmm. and they're very it's very hard for them to look at life at a different in a different way i've worked with a lot of those kids yeah, yeah. and probably some of the toughest kids i've ever worked with mm-hmm. and what happens to those kids that do you know in, in- later in life does the light bulb go on or what kind of life do they lead pretty lonely life pretty lonely life yeah right sometimes some of them see what they're missing Mm -hmm. and want to try and repair it i've had adults contact me and ask me if i do work with adults who have attachment disorder right and yeah i will i'll try right but uh so set in your ways and if and if uh drugs or or alcohol have been your, the way you soothe yourself then it's really it's, it's really right. hard right well you know i think your brain has changed from trauma and when you're yes. you know a child or adolescent you know like any other typical kid your frontal lobe with all the you know, reasoning, planning, decision-making, that's not formed till much later. So then you also don't have that piece of it, which is typical, but on top of it, you've got a trauma brain, a traumatized brain. Um, Right. So you're living basically in PTSD your entire life. Yeah. And to have to let go of that control and, and, and trust. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a very tough, thing to take on mm-hmm. it's not always successful no but you found that that relationship piece for you the McKelvey method <laughs> is uh the place it's the way i developed how to how to uh, break through there are some good therapists out there who who do that kind of work right I imagine there's a lot of burnout in this field as a therapist because it's such challenging work and you don't always see progress. Right. There is. There is. 
I continue to enjoy doing it, <laughs> but I have found that I, as I gotten older, that I've shied away from working with the teenagers because they can be so smart. Mm. And as you get older, you're not as sharp as you used to be. You, you know, you have, with teenagers, a lot of times it's a mental game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's not as much fun as, no. as, as, as helping the younger one. Mm-hmm. Well, and I imagine it's like most other therapies, early intervention is, is so important, right? That's the crucial, the earlier that you can get working with these kiddos, the better. And, you know, you said something, you know, I hear a lot of parents and I've heard it myself too, that in the foster adoptive world, you hear people saying, oh, reactive attachment disorder is rare, but you, and I have heard other therapists and parents know this just from knowing (laughs) and experiencing it, but it's not not that rare. You know, I mean, this is a foster adoptive system where kids are in it because of neglect abuse that they're not in it for mostly positive reasons. And so how could you not expect there to be why do you think there are people in that system still believing, and I'm sure it's coming from an authentic place, but, or a naive place, but mm-hmm. you know, why is, where did that come from and why is it still prevalent today? Or do you have any insight on that? I, I think people just don't like to believe that terrible things happen to children mm-hmm. and they just don't want to believe that that happens. Now, even when it's like right in your face. Mm. Frankly, our system is so, so backwards. It's, it's, it's almost set up to damage kids. And you take them out of an abusive, neglectful home. And now a lot of the treatment foster families I've worked with have been amazing, Mm -hmm. just amazing. Uh, But some people are not. Right. And they get this really damaged kid into their house and they either get damaged some more or the foster parent doesn't understand what to do with them. And, you know, it's punitive to them. Mm Mm-hmm. I almost think somewhere in the back of my head that an orphanage system that's run properly by caring people who can make relationships with kids is better. Yeah. Because they go from one abusive situation to another, to another. And by the time somebody like me gets a hold of them, it's like, oh my God, what happened to this kid? And so much of it could be prevented with the right structures and systems in place. Right. Yeah. And there's never enough caseworkers. There's never enough. We we just don't put money there. I think that's what a lot of organizations and people are trying to do now is raise that awareness to make that change on the level it needs to be changed. That they don't get so hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You know, if they get really hurt, and then they, they come to a therapist. Well, <laughs> you know, 
what are you going to do? Right, right. Or there's only so much you can do. Only so much you can do. Mm-hmm. And the kid has to want to do some of it too. That's exactly it. Yeah. And if they don't, yeah. They don't. Right. You know, with reactive attachment disorder, there's a whole range of behaviors and things. There's some kids that are very overt and they're suicidal, homicidal. It's all out there. And mm-hmm. then there's the children and teenagers that are more internal. And so it comes out as, you know, I always explain it as locked in, locked in with their emotions. And it comes out sometimes hurting themselves, self-harm, but more of the manipulation triangulation Mm -hmm. without those aggressive outward behaviors, you know, is, is one, is there any significance in that? Is one of those children easier or harder to treat or are they just different behaviors and you just tackle them individually for what they are? Yeah, they're just different. They're just different. And you just tackle what's sitting in front of you. Right. So there's not one harder case than another. It's just individual case by case. The kids who are trying to kill their parents or their mm-hmm. siblings, you know, you have to put in, of course, uh, some some physical restraints like locks on doors and things like that that you wouldn't have to do with a kid who's internalized all of this. Right. You know, keeping somebody else from getting hurt or killed mm-hmm. is uh, is kind of then primary in that particular case. And there are an awful lot of kids who have reactive attachment disorder who are aggressive. Mm-hmm. I was walking with uh, the child who was the dog and then became a boy. I was walking with him. I used to take long walks with him to process things. And I was walking with him one day on this little path. And I looked up ahead and I saw that there was a broken uh, wine bottle laying on the side of the road. And it flashed in my head that I could be in danger right then. Mm-hmm. But I told myself, no, I've established this relationship with this kid. We're going to just keep walking and talking. And I'm not going to let that enter my mind. And nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I don't think you've noticed it. Right. But with those with kids who can be aggressive like that, you have to be very, very careful about where they're placed and how you work with them. Right. And have you been in some situations that have been frightening for you and you've had to deal with that? Uh, I have been. Yeah. yeah. But usually, you know, I have a very calm head usually. And I, and I usually can divert attention or get myself out of the situation if I have to. So. Right. Yeah, I have. Yeah. You know, it's always, I think for me, the hardest and probably for parents and therapists is, um, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's, it's really difficult to see these kids who, you know, their life with trauma and neglect and abuse. So you can really sympathize with why they are the way they are. And you can also see the potential in them that, you know, you 
you can't draw out unless they choose to. And then you want to love them. And, you know, most of the systems say, just get them home, love them, do all the things that most parents do that create that. And that doesn't work. Right. So you end up having to parent so differently and then deal with everyone else around you, seeing how you parent or wondering what, what is going on. Yeah. What the heck? Right. And, and a lot of parents who are parenting that way begin to get blamed by their families or the community Mm -hmm. that they're being mean or they don't love the child. Right. And, and that throws another whole thing in the monkey ranch. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's just so much. So, you know, you, you, you feel for it, but then you're dealing with your own change in a role as a parent or what you thought you wanted to could be and should be and aren't and can't be it's just a lot and then you're dealing with all that outside stuff um people judging you yeah yeah and lucky if you're not you know we had a really supportive family and but you know it's really hard for people to understand and 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 see Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but it's devastating to me I think that's the hardest most complicated piece of it is seeing the potential in your child and wanting it to come out them not seeing it or being able to or being locked in and holding it in and uh, you know just waiting and hoping for that moment or that person that can the therapy or whatever it it, mm-hmm. it takes to you know bring them out of that it's just frustrating to see it all in that person and you know when I was right. in graduate school I worked at a one of my placements was working in a maximum security facility for children adjudicated up to age 21. And a lot of those, I think at that time, it was 60 to 80% of the children in those facilities had some type of learning disability. And now I look back and think, oh my gosh, reactive attachment disorder is, you what, know, they had. is what they had. And I right. saw the same thing as these kids with such potential, but I worked in a locked mental health facility in California for a while, and I can't tell you how terrifying that was. I would never put myself in that position again. Really? Uh, People from off the streets, because, you know, in California, they basically have thrown the mentally ill to the winds, Mm -hmm. and they have very few resources. And they, on purpose, had these giant male nurses. Oh, intimidating. They used chemical restraint. Oh. And I, I, I couldn't get out of that place fast enough. Right. <laughs> it was awful. And oh. most of them had reactive attachment disorder. Right. And you got right down to it. And I think many of the people who are, are homeless on the street also do. And, uh, but I don't want to leave an impression that it's impossible and nothing, nothing good can come of it. Right. Because it can be with the right therapist and the right parenting, it, it can be successful. Right. Absolutely. And I'm meeting more people like you that have those stories and that do believe that. And I think it's just on a systemic level, you know, it's one of those disorders that I equate it to dementia. It's a scary 
unknown. What do we do with this? We don't know how to help these people. So let's just kind of push it under the rug or put them all in this facility or this locked unit. And, and because it's scary, and like you say, even for the professionals involved, but I think the talking about what can happen and how prevalent it is, because I think we're at that phase and, and starting to come out of it, but where people don't know how to deal with it. So they don't deal with it. And instead, you know, it is sometimes talking about how bad it can be, how prevalent it is for people to realize, gee, you know, if we just start really looking at how we can treat this and help these kids and help these families, then that's how we'll make that change. And, and I do think that's what's happening. And like I say, you know, I'm, I'm meeting parents and, and therapists and just the, this community that's out there and growing, I think is, it's at a really good place and we're starting to evolve to make that change on the level it needs to be instead of all of us in our own ways trying to piecemeal and just work with who comes our way right that bigger change where hey the earlier the intervention great and why don't we put some things in place so this isn't even happening or kids are getting what they need and families are prepared Right. Right. And, you know, uh, bring uh, in uh, underserved populations, bring in experts to teach them how to be parents to their children so that this doesn't happen. Right. It's so much easier to fix it in the beginning. Yes. I mean, when you look at it, adoption is all about loss. Mm -hmm. It, It is. From the parent's point of view, because you've lost the birth child you wanted to have, Mm -hmm. somehow something happened there. Right. From the child's point of view, um, they've lost their birth family, Mm -hmm. um, often through absolutely no, nothing they caused, although they take that on to themselves a Mm -hmm. lot. And it's all about loss. And so then if you look at it that way, then you have to figure out a way to bring some bring something to it that takes some of that loss away right and you raise an excellent point about you know i think if parents were prepared and knew hey there's going to be a different type of parenting this is right from the get-go you feel supported and like you have some sense of control versus finding out over time, Hey, something's not right here. This is really hard and harder than what is happening. Right. And then eventually you're like, what is happening? Right. And not very many of the adoption agencies or the social services organizations are really preparing parents for what they're going to face. Right. Uh, Maybe they don't because they're afraid that people will freak out and decide not to adopt these kids, Mm -hmm. but you got to prepare the parents for what they're going to face. Right. And I think in the end, you'd find that these parents would still adopt. And, but would have a better success rate. Yes. Right. And being linked up with resources from the get-go, knowing there's people that you can reach out to, like you're saying, therapy is important. Talking with other parents Mm -hmm. that have gone through this and reaching out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And therapy for the child, of course, and family. Mm-hmm. And it really does take a village. Oh, I hear it's got to be the schools. Yes. It's got to be the churches. It's right. got to be the 
adoption agencies. It's got to be the other parents. Mm -hmm. It really does take all those people be connected to be able to help the kids. Yeah. And stop brushing it under the rug or kind of keeping it not, well, maybe on purpose. I don't know, (laughs) but secretive, you know, and just let's not highlight this or talk about this and let's just get this kid adopted. We have fewer mass shootings too. Yeah, for sure. Right. This, this kid at Columbine, I, I worked in that area. Did you? And, um, counsel a lot of the survivors from Columbine. Did you? Uh, yeah. And those two boys, I am convinced were attachment disordered and nobody got to them and that happened. That's the worst case scenario for these kids, right? Right. Is ending up doing something like that and the family. And then dying. And then, yeah. Yeah. Or in jail. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. If we did, if we did an a national survey of those who are incarcerated, I think we would find that about at least 75% have attachment disorder of some mm-hmm. form or another. Not surprising knowing, knowing about it and right. what knowing it is. Yeah. How unempathetic they are mm-hmm. and how they can't relate to other human beings. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. So you do online therapy. Are mm-hmm. you available? Who and who needs you? How do you help? And how do they get in touch with you, Carol? Well, I can only work with those who are in New Mexico. Right. Or who are in a state that don't have restrictions on who they can work with online. Okay. And I do have carolmckelvey.com. So they can get in touch with me. I'm happy to, to, even if I can't do therapy with them, I'm happy to try and point them in a direction in their community. Oh, wow. That, I think, is the biggest comfort right, right there. Yeah. Or they can find me on Facebook. Okay. And I'll and post your information and contact information on my Facebook page, too, great. so that people can reach you. And so they can talk to you about potential therapy, but they you're open to them contacting you just for any guidance on what they should do and who they should see. That's fantastic. Is there anything, I always ask this question (laughs) because I don't always know what to ask. These conversations just kind of flow, but I'm, I'm always trying to think of what would be helpful to parents or somebody listening. You know, is there anything else that you would like to share that maybe I didn't ask or I missed or that you feel would be valuable or needs to be heard or would be helpful? Yeah, if you can get your hands on any books written by Jim Fay and Dr. Foster Klein. Jim Fay and Dr. Foster Klein. And Dr. Foster Klein. Okay. And Nancy Thomas. They have they have uh, a very good parenting protocol that people can follow that will help you immensely working with your attachment disorder child. Great. I appreciate that. I used to know the names of the books, but I can't pull it out of my brain right now. That's okay. You know, I Google and I always post everybody's books on my website, including yours. You have, I found three of them. And so uh, I will post those as well. Right. I recommend 
that people don't read high risk anymore. Okay. <laughs> because it's very frightening. It's very frightening. Okay. I'm currently working on a new one. I don't have any idea when I'm going to get it done. Okay. Uh, on uh, saving the high risk child. Oh, I love so just I the title have, of As that. soon as I have it published and out, I'll let you know. Okay. It's about what intervention should be used to help these kids. Wow. That should be everywhere. Well, I just really want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you for doing what you do and being available to everybody. It's hard work. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing. Oh, I was very happy to do so. Thank you. Great. My favorite topic. <laughs> Your favorite topic. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.